Okay, let's, uh, let's have a word of prayer. We'll get going here. Lord, we do thank you for the fact that we can gather together as those who belong to you. Lord, may we increasingly see ourselves through your eyes as your children, as citizens of your realm. Lord, as those who are complete in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, as we move forward through our study of Colossians, may we increasingly see the difference between the old man and the new. And see why the Christian life is not about us fixing the old, but learning to embrace the new, which is found only in Christ. May we grow beyond seeing Christ as merely our Savior, to seeing him as our life and our source of all things. Lord, I thank you that we have your Holy Spirit to guide us in our growth process. We pray, Lord, that we would be open and yielded to his ministry today, and Lord, that he would open the eyes of our understanding to the truths that you have prepared each of us to take in at this point in our Christian lives. For it's in the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Okay, we're continuing on in the final section of the letter. Again, I remind you that the overarching theme of the letter, that which basically uh, holds the letter together, that which uh, really every part of the letter points towards, and that is that the Christian life finds its sole source in Jesus Christ who is preeminent over all things. And I remind you that, you know, Paul uh, was prompted to uh, sit down and pen this letter because there were those that had come into the church at Colossae who were saying that the Colossian believers needed something in addition to what Christ had provided. Uh, they were not necessarily uh, telling people to reject Christ as their Savior, but uh, to look for additional provision uh, for uh, their, uh, their lives. And Paul is seeking to uh, establish the fact that we as believers need nothing else. We've already seen that in Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily and we are complete in Him. If everything that God is is found in Christ and we're complete in Him, what on earth are we lacking? You know, we're told that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. We're told by Peter that we have everything necessary for life and godliness. Everything. You and I are lacking nothing. So why do we struggle? Why do we at times look like we, we lack so much? It's not because the provision isn't there. It's because we have not grown in our knowledge and understanding of all that we are and have in Christ and learned to appropriate it. I think I used the illustration the other week. I said, you know, I used to tell my students who often struggled with their school bill and things, I said, if you had a very wealthy relative die and leave you their vast fortune, 
It would not change your life at all if you didn't know it. (laughs) You know, somebody would have to bring you the information that, hey... You know, this relative who was a multimillionaire left everything to you. But even getting that piece of information wouldn't change anything if it was all, oh, that's great. But then they never looked into what they got. And they never learned how to take hold of it and utilize it. They could theoretically be multimillionaires and still live like they're in poverty simply because they have not learned what they have and how to use it. And that's where we find ourselves in the Christian life. We have all this provision in Christ, but we have to grow in our knowledge and understanding of it. And, you know, we saw that, you know, we are new creations in Christ. Of course, Paul tells us that in his letter to the church at Corinth. You know, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. All things have become new. I think many of us who grew up in the church memorized that early in life. But do we really understand that and do we really believe it? Do we really believe we're new creations? And I've said it many times, I don't think we often do because when we define ourselves, we often continue to define ourselves on the basis of our old Adamic life. I'm just a sinner. That's all I am. I'm a saved sinner, but still very much a sinner. And yet, as I've pointed out, the names that God uses for us Starting, you know, with Romans and all the way through the New Testament epistle. He does not call us sinners. He calls us saints. He calls us brethren. He calls us children. He calls us sons. These are the names God uses. Of They are new creation names. Now, we talked about, about the fact, you know, Paul talks about putting off the old man and putting on the new man. We talked about that last week. I said, most of the modern translations say put off the old self and put on the new self. I I really do not like that. In the Greek, there was a term for self. It's not used here. And the reason I don't like it is because while the old man is very much a self-life, it's lived independently. The new man is a Christ life. It is lived in total union with Christ. It cannot function as a new creation life apart from Him. It has a symbiotic relationship with Christ. It is 100% dependent upon Him. And so, you know, there's my old self-life... And whenever I start living on the basis of myself, I'm always back at that old Adamic life. For me to experience my new creation life, I have got to be abiding in Christ. Day in, day out. Moment by moment. 
Now, last week we, we were focusing mostly, really the last two weeks we were together, where Paul talks about putting off the old and putting on the new, and the things that we are to put off as we put off the old man. And he gave us quite a list of things, the very kinds of things that, that describe the old Adamic life. But this week, we want to uh, begin looking at what we are to put on. Because the Christian life is not simply about what we turn from. It's what replaces the old. You know, too often the Christian life is viewed by people as what we give up. No, it's very much what we replace with things of greater value, things of eternal value. I have given up nothing. I have had a lot replaced in my Christian life. Things that, you know, I could have gone a path of things that are of no eternal value, things that are destructive. I know what my self-life is capable of. I know what that Adamic nature is capable of. And I thank God regularly for the fact that He has given me a very different life. And that in His grace, He has allowed me, permitted me, to be involved in what He is doing in His work. Now last week we kind of, or it was two weeks ago I guess, we ended on the note that in Christ there are none of the distinctions that existed in the world. And Paul gives a long list of distinctions that existed in his day. There were the, you know, there was the Roman and there were the non-Romans. There was uh, uh, the Hebraic Jews and the, uh, the Hellenistic Jews. There were the Jews and there were the Gentiles. And there were prejudices between these groups. And sadly, there are still distinctions. But Paul says that is not the way it's intended to be. We are all one in Christ. Everything I am, everything I have comes from Christ. Everything you are, everything you have as a new creation comes from Christ. I do not have more of Christ than you. You don't have more of Christ than me. Now, there may be great, uh, Christ may be more evident in some of our lives than others. But God has not provided anything for me he hasn't provided for you and vice versa we are all one in Christ now we pick up today in verse 12 of chapter 3 it says and so as those who have been chosen of God holy and beloved Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. 
bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a, a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Now, again, as we move into this section here, we find that our new life in Christ is not merely evidenced by the things we turn from, but the, some very positive things that begin to be formed in us. And I will remind you that that comes from this new life we have in Christ. Uh, let me throw this slide up. Uh, we talked about this last time, but it's something to keep in mind. It says, in that there are two distinct natures seeking expression by means of our as yet unredeemed body. We must keep them separated in our thinking. In itself, the old nature is ever strong to do evil. Only by the Holy Spirit is the new nature strong to bring forth righteousness. It's only as the Spirit produces Christ in us that we can produce righteousness. So we've always got to keep these separated in our mind. And as we move forward and we look at the characteristics that we are to put on, we have to keep straight in our mind that these characteristics are put on by us abiding in Christ. Because all too often what happens is Christians read this list and they try to change the old Adamic life. They try to make it look like that. If you do not understand these two distinctions, that's what you're going to have a tendency to do. And it's going to be frustrating. You see... You know, many times people read the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, self-control. And they'll find themselves lacking in these things. So, you know, it's, well, I need to be more loving. And they try to make the old man more loving. And that's a frustrating process. And in trying to make him loving, they probably become a whole lot less joyful. And so, well, I need to work on being more joyful. So you walk around, you know, take a smile, plaster it on your face. I'm going to be joyful. Trying to make the old man joyful. The fruit of the Spirit is what? The fruit of the Spirit. It is what He produces in us. If I find myself lacking in these areas, it should push me back to the Lord and say, you know, Father, I see that I do not have the kind of love present in my life that, that you say I have the capacity to show forth in Christ. Lord, I want you to do, deepen my relationship with Christ to the point that that love is seen in and through me. Lord, I'm struggling with being joyful and that tells me that something is lacking in my walk with, the, with Christ. Because if things were right, that joy would be there. 
I think I said the other week, something that has, I've come, become aware of is, you know, we do have the imperatives in the New Testament. But I pointed out, uh, God gave Israel 613 imperatives. The law. And for 2,000 years, <clears throat> Israel thought God had given them those imperatives to enable them to live righteous. And then Paul comes on the scene and says, no, that wasn't the purpose of the law in any, any, in any uh, way. The, uh, the purpose of those imperatives were to show us our need of Christ. And I think that's true of the imperatives in the New Testament. They're to bring us to that place Paul came to in Romans 7. The good I want to do, Lord, I can't do it. And the evil I don't want to do, Lord, I continually do. Oh, who, uh, who shall rescue me from this, you know, this position? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. The imperative should bring us to that point of saying, God, I can't produce this life that you're describing here. And it should bring us back to Christ. Every imperative in the New Testament should bring us back to Christ. And the realization that only through Him we can do it. Now Paul here in verse 12 exhorts us to live as those who are chosen of God. And the issue of the believer's election has unfortunately become the source of great division in the body of Christ. It's another area of distinction that divides. And unfortunately, it has become very much like the Jew-Gentile issue of Paul's day. And as in the Jew-Gentile distinction, there seems to be an un a misunderstanding of what it means to be chosen by God. And I know there's probably going to be differing views in this room, but I feel compelled <clears throat> to present what I believe the Lord has taught me over the years. In fact, about 40 years ago, I spent like two years taking every single passage in the Bible dealing with this and looking at them in context. And that was back when there weren't computers and there weren't word searches. You had to take a concordance and you had to find every word and you had to look up every word and you had to look up the definition for every word. And the Lord taught me a lot. And the 40 years that have passed by hasn't changed my view, really. But, you know, the Jews came to view their election as being an election to a special relationship with God. We, you know, the Jews saw themselves as the only ones who were saved. Everyone else was lost. God didn't care about anybody else. It was all about them. They didn't see that their election was to a special purpose. They were to be a royal priesthood. A nation that manifested God to all mankind. 
And I am convinced that the Christian's elect position doesn't mean that we were chosen to salvation, but rather that in coming to salvation, we come to a, a very special chosen purpose. <clears throat> in Ephesians 1.4, Paul tells us, <clears throat> He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Now I know many read that verse and say, see it says God chose us to be in Christ. No it doesn't. There's not a to be verb before in Christ. It says he chose us in Christ. To what end? That we should be holy and blameless. God before the the beginning of the world determined that everyone in Christ would be a people chosen to be holy and blameless in His sight. I'm convinced we are not saved because we're chosen. We're chosen because we're saved. And that's an important distinction. And it's one, I believe, that if you look at context, it will be borne out. That it is, the, it is always involved in how God is using us. How we are serving Him. In fact, in Romans, it's the bridge between Romans... Uh, the section of Romans that deals with our justification and redemption and service. It's the bridge in between. And I've used the illustration with my students. I say, you know, every fall we have these bowl games and we have these um, parades. Like the Rose Bowl, uh, well... Uh, the Macy's and different ones, and then around the first of the year, they have the Rose Bowl. And you have these bands that march. Well, they're generally chosen a year or two in advance. And so the band is chosen. And so everybody in that uh, band becomes part of the chosen group. So if somebody who wasn't part when that group was originally chosen comes and joins that group, they become part of the chosen Right? Because they're chosen because they're in the band. We're chosen because we are in Christ. And we're chosen for several purposes. Here, to be holy and blameless in His sight. God determined that everyone that is in Christ would be set apart. Set apart from from the world. Set apart as His. That everyone in Christ would be chosen to be viewed as blameless in His sight. Now in 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2. Peter goes on to state that we were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. And the word foreknowledge in the Greek actually simply means to know beforehand. Not to cause, but to know. For according to the foreknowledge of God, by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, that we 
would obey Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. And here Peter speaks of us as being chosen for a dual purpose. Chosen by what? On what means? By the means of the Holy Spirit taking and setting us apart. When we placed our faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit took us, put us in Christ, and set us apart for a dual purpose. Obedience and consecration. Now you might say, I see obedience. Where on earth do you get consecration? Well, most people, when they uh, look at sprinkled by His blood, they think of that as being salvation. But go back to the Old Testament and look at when people were sprinkled with blood. On the Day of Atonement, no blood was sprinkled on people. The blood was taken in and put on the mercy seat. When blood was sprinkled was when someone was consecrated for God's purpose. When the vessels of the temple were consecrated to his youth, Moses took and sprinkled blood on them. When the nation of Israel was set apart for God's use, Moses sacrificed an animal, animal caught the blood in a vessel, took some hyssop, and he went out and he sprinkled blood all over everybody. It was about them being set apart. And we've been sprinkled with the blood of Christ. What? To be set apart for God's purpose. That is who we are. And instead of dividing believers, the reality of our election is intended to remind us we share a common purpose. God has chosen everyone in Christ to be separated from the world. He has chosen everyone in Christ to live lives consecrated to Him. He has chosen everyone in Christ to live lives that are obedient, something the world can't do. And in fact, every one of these things are things that the unbelieving world is incapable of. They are made possible by one means, and that is by our position in Christ. It's the only thing that makes it possible. And so, as those who have become part of this chosen group, the moment we put our faith in Christ, we became part of this chosen group. As those who are part of that chosen group, He exhorts us to live as those who are holy and beloved. The term holy in the Greek is the word hagios, which has to do with being separated. It's very closely related to two other words. One is sanctified and the other is saint. And we're to live our lives as those who have been set apart. Now, positionally, in Christ, we are as holy as we will ever be. As God looks down on us, He sees us as separated from this world. We may go out and move all throughout the world this week, but God will always see us as different. He'll see us as His. In practice, though, we are being sanctified. The Holy Spirit is consistently seeking to bring our lives in line with who we are. 
He wants our lives to show forth a family resemblance. (laughs) He wants that when people look at us, they see us as bearing the marks of being His children, of being citizens of heaven. He wants us not only to be separated in His eyes, but to be separated in the eyes of the world. And this process is enhanced as we learn to see ourselves as being separated unto God. We really have to see ourselves as different from this world. You know, we talk about sanctification having uh, three aspects. Positional, practical, and ultimate. And I've used the illustration. I said, you know, when our girls were little, they had these programs at school and we dutifully went and watched. And you sit back there and you look up front and you see like 30 or 40 kids and and, uh, Heather and Emily. In our eyes, they were separate. You know, they looked different (laughs) because they were ours. The rest were just a bunch of kids. But they were ours. But you know, we also wanted them as they grew up to show forth our family values in their lives. You know, any of you parents, you know, you know the, the old response when kids say, well, everyone else is doing it. What is the parent's response? You aren't everyone else. <laughs> you are our child. And we want you to manifest in your actions the reality that you are ours. And then there's ultimate sanctification. At the end of those programs, we'd go up and get Heather and Emily and take them home. We'd separate them. And that comes when, with the rapture for us. When God will one day totally separate us physically from this world. But right now we're separated in His eye and He wants us to be increasingly separated in our lives. But it comes as we learn to live more and more on the basis of our union with Christ. Now, along with our position of separation, Paul tells us, that it brings us into the position of being beloved by God. And we are beloved not because of our actions, but because of who we are in Christ. Now, I think it's important to realize that believers are the only ones in Scripture that, God, that Scripture says God loves. You might say, well, you know, he loves the unbelievers. No, it never says that. He says in a, in a completed sense, he has loved. John three sixteen and 17. Linwood Bowden pointed that out to me 30 some years ago. And again, I have never found anything contrary to that in all of Scripture. You know, you take somebody like Rob Bell who says love wins out. That's because he really does not see what Scripture says about God's love. 
When Christ went to the cross, it was a once and for all action of love towards the unbelieving world. And the world can accept that loving provision and move into Christ and move into the realm in which love is God's day-to-day operating principle. Or they can reject that once-off act of love and continue to live as the enemies of God and at enmity with Him. Again, we, we take the word love because in English we only have one word. And we fail to recognize that in the Greek there were four words, only two of which are used in the New Testament. There was eros, which is romantic love, never spoken of in the New Testament. Nothing wrong with it if it's held within, you know, godly bounds. There's storge, which is a protective love, like a parent for its child. It's also not found in the New Testament. There's agape and there's phileo. Phileo is more closely, or most closely, related to what we often think of love. It's a friendship love. It's an emotional attachment. It is never used with regards to the unbelieving world. It is used on, I can think of one occasion with regards to believers. I think that's in John 16, where Christ speaks about the fact that the Father loves us with a phileo love. Agape is the predominant word, and agape is more of a value-driven action. Is placing a value on someone and pursuing what is best even at great personal expense. That's what God did through Christ on the cross as a once and for all action. The world was his enemy. The world was at enmity with him. But out of agape love, he paid the ultimate price so that anyone who wanted to enter into a relationship with him could do so. And that is what the realm in which we live. We are God's beloved. He is constantly dealing with us on the basis of his love. Now, a true understanding of what it means to be chosen, to be holy, and to be beloved makes possible the kind of attitude described in the latter part of verse 12. Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Now, if I come to a a true grasp that none of the things, whether it's my election or my holiness or my beloved position, in any way rests on my merit nor do they make me better than anyone else, the divisiveness of prejudice is done away with. 
Unfortunately, if I do not have a proper understanding of any one of these three things, it will produce the opposite result. And nowhere is that more clearly seen in the nation of Israel in, in our Lord's day. The Jews misunderstood what it meant to be God's chosen people. And so they came to look with total disdain on everyone around them. We're God's chosen people. You Gentiles are dogs. You're trash. You're nothing. See, they didn't realize that God had put them in a chosen position because He wanted them to declare Him to the nations, to manifest Him to the nations. In fact, when Solomon dedicated his temple, there was a huge courtyard that was there for the Gentiles. In fact, as he prayed his prayer of dedication, he talked about the day when the Gentiles would come from afar to worship God there at the temple. That was God's intended purpose. And yet, in the day of Christ, no Gentile was allowed to enter the temple. Not even the court of Gentile. It seems that that was probably where they had made their marketplace to sell the the offerings. See, Israel had lost sight of the fact that they were a chosen vessel to show God to the world. They thought it was about them. They misunderstood their source of holiness. As a result, they sought to isolate themselves from the rest of the world. It wasn't just about being separated from the world, it was everything about isolation. And they mistakenly came to believe that they merited their position of God's beloved and became prideful of themselves and then totally intolerant of others. You see that as you read through the Gospels. See, the reality is a true understanding of these three are so important. What's the attitude that flows from a proper understanding? Well, first of all, they make possible a heart of compassion. If I really understand what a charity case I am, and I came to Christ very much a charity case, if I understand that, and everything I am, everything of value, is still at the basis of God's charity, His agape. As I pointed out the other week, I think, or maybe... I don't know, I speak two different places, so I can't keep straight what I say where. Uh, But uh, that, to me, the King James translation of agape with the word charity often is probably a more accurate translation. It conveys more clearly what's involved in agape. Seeing someone in need and ministering to that need, even if you don't feel uh, warm fuzzies for them. Um... And you know, I'm a charity case. And so if I truly grasp that, then it destroys any judgmental attitude I might have towards others. Because I realize if it weren't for the grace of God working in my life, I could be as bad as them or worse. 
as long as I think that my position in the eyes of God has something to do with my merit, I'm going to be intolerant of others. It's only as I come to understand grace, you know, that and God's ongoing compassion towards me, that I begin to show that same compassion towards others. And boy, the more I've come to understand the grace of God, the more it's changed me in that area. It really did. And I think I saw that more at the school than anywhere. Um, The Lord just made me more and more compassionate for the students and their struggles and their failures. And desirous to show them the same grace that He showed me on a daily basis. There was often this, you know, many there at the school were always wanting to come down on students because they did this or they did that. And there's a time for that. It just depends on people's attitudes. But I learned that compassion goes a long ways. A long ways. It goes so far in winning the hearts of people. And, you know, I... I know that I was probably taken advantage of at times for being gracious and compassionate. But I'd rather err on that side than on the other. I'd rather be known as somebody who's gracious and compassionate than someone who's just very rigid and very much by the book. And that is my understanding of of my position produces a heart of compassion towards others. It results in kindness being shown. Acts of unkindness do not flow from this new life in Christ. If you act unkindly, you can bet it didn't come from from your, your new creation life. Those acts of unkindness come from the old Adamic life. They flow from sin within. And kindness goes a long ways. Yeah? You know, kindness, that seems like sort of a, not that big a deal word, but believe it or not, we used to teach the, the dandy, believe it or not, the dating classes in elective. Uh, one of the things that that was just so well said in the book we used called I Isaac Hate Rebecca was unkindness is the half pin to the heart of love and will bleed it to death. And there's just so much to yeah. say about that. Yeah. And there's so yeah. power in those words. Yeah. Kindness. Yeah. And God knew what he was doing. Yeah. 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 And then a proper understanding of my new position also produces an attitude of humility. And we talked about humility the the other week. That humility is not thinking lowly of ourselves. It's not being focused on ourselves at all. The more I come to understand that all I am and all that I have flows from Christ, the more focused I become on Him and the less focused I become on myself. And this flows over into my dealings with others. 
And humility in turn results in gentleness. Or some translations translate it meekness. I guarantee you the strife that takes place in the world, not only in the world, but in the body of, the Christ, uh, body of Christ, is not because of too much humility. It's the result of self-seeking pride. And pride produces harshness in dealing with others. Humility also results in patience. Pride, uh, pride <laughs> breeds uh, impatience. If I think this is what I have achieved, then I expect others to achieve it. As I begin to humbly see myself in Christ, I recognize that anything about me that's of eternal value is the result of God's work. And I can wait on God to accomplish it in others. I can back off and be patient with them. Now we're out of time. I'll stop there. Uh, but uh, we'll pick up there next week. Lord, we do thank you for this whole new way of living that's our potential. And Lord, it's not simply what we should be doing. It's what we could be. If we would simply learn to live like branches of the true vine. Living and abiding in him. Letting his life and fruit flow through us. May we grow in that area. And Lord, may you move us in that direction in the week ahead. First, in the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.